Hi there, I'm Laura Nyasita Ondari, and this is the Science in Real Life podcast. I'm a bioinformatician with a background in medical biochemistry, and on this podcast, I bring you the inside scoop of the reality of a STEM career from candid conversations with individuals in the field. I hope you enjoy it, and let's get right into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Science in Green Life podcast. Uh, the guest today, I'm very um, excited for her to be on the show. And of course, I'm going to let her introduce herself um, and sort of tell us who she is, where she is, what she's currently doing before we get into the integrities of the conversation. Siobhan, go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience today. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you um, so much for the invites. I'm really excited to be here. It's, um, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to share my story. So thank you for that. Um, as you said, um, my name is Siobhan. So my full name is Siobhan Mackenzie Hall. I'm originally from South Africa, where I spent most of my life. Um, I've only recently moved to the UK. Um, I will describe what I do in two parts, mainly my work at the University of Oxford, where I'm doing my default, which is just um, Oxford speak for PhD. And then, um, as well as my work as part of the Oxford Artificial Intelligence Society, uh, which I'll refer to as OxAI going forward. Um, so as part of my PhD, I'm in the Oxford Neural Interfacing Group, which um, is this really exciting group here at Oxford, where I'm looking at stimulation of the somatosensory cortex. So basically, what this means is that I'm trying to induce sensation um, by directly stimulating the, the cortex. Uh, this kind of technology will help us interface with the sensory system, specifically for touch, <clears throat> so that we can um, try and um, get, you know, single uh, the sensation in, in a single fingertip, for example. This has short-term aims of um, mapping out the sensory cortex before its tumor is removed. This is important because tumors tend to spread out, and uh, surgeons don't want to remove any brain tissue that will cause disability. So by knowing exactly where the sensory cortex is and its boundaries, um, they can make more informed decisions. Longer term, we're looking at a kind of feedback loop in a brain-computer interface where a prosthetic limb might get um, some kind of sensory feedback, then the person using it can integrate that to create more natural movements. On the side, um, with OxAI, I have the most amazing opportunity to work with a group of students that are really passionate about looking at ways to investigate social biases in large-scale vision language models. So these are the kind of models that you'd find in search engines where you you know input a search query and it returns some images back to you. Automatic captioning where you give it a photo and you ask it to generate some kind of text about the photo. Or more recently, text-to-image generation where you, you give a prompt, you say um, a photo of a dog and then the 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 model generates an image and um, there's many exciting uses for these models but we also look at how these models can be improved so that they have less of an impact on how they affect people how people are represented in certain contexts so that there's also a reduced chance of anyone missing out on opportunities because of um, the distortion of a, a opinion or representation of people oh wow that's very interesting actually you just talked about the brain and they because I have a background in biochemistry. But a lot of what we, we were doing is dealing with like hormones, the endocrine system. I don't even know if that's in the brain, but like something like that. And ah, good old days when we used to do that. Now I'm just stuck in code and writing and doing all that. 
But like, how 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 did you get interested, sort of in? Okay, two parts first. Uh, did you want? Did you always want to do things to do with the brain? And like, how did AI come into that picture? Uh, if this is something you were interested in doing from the very beginning. Yeah. So um, it has been a bit of a long journey. I didn't start in the field that I'm working in now. Um, I first started in physiotherapy which is actually where I got my first interest in neurology. So that's working with um, adults that have had some kind of brain injury, whether it's a stroke or um, possibly tumor removal or um, you know, a traumatic brain injury or children that have had some kind of trauma during birth that has affected their brain. Uh, this is where I, I, I started and I, I first realized my interest in, in um, the brain. But um, as I said, it's a it's been a bit of a journey to get to where I am here. So, um, and, and I think a lot of that has been um, talking to people and the people that I've come into contact with and, and realizing what I'd like to do. Um, so if you'd like, I could tell the story um, basically from my undergrad to where I am now. Yes, please do share. Okay, great. So I think the best way to tell the story and the way um, I like to tell it is through the lens of the people that I've worked with. Um, and this starts with um, my time as a, when I did my community service in 2017. Sure. Um, this was at the uh, Tabisa Provincial Tertiary Hospital, which is uh, near one of the main airports that you might know from Owatambo in, in South Africa. This was basically uh, where I'd like to start the story because uh, I was part of the most amazing team and I'm really grateful for the opportunity that I had to work in this department. Um, the most amazing work ethic and their commitment to supporting their patients. Um, this really gave me uh, quite a unique opportunity to see what life on the front line is like. Um, physiotherapists in South Africa tend to work very um, much independently, um, obviously within the multidisciplinary team. But uh, we, you know, we're, we're we're in the ICU, we're in um, we're in the wards as well. Um, so this this also gave me a lot of insights into the reality that many South Africans face on a daily basis. And even though I've moved on from this career, I still draw on that experience. I think it was a very grounding and humbling experience. And a lot of that was shaped by the team that I worked with. This year also gave me uh, a lot of chance to explore postgraduate op opportunities. At this point, I knew I wanted to do something different. Uh, I knew I wanted to do something a bit more tech-based, but I wasn't actually sure what would be possible with a degree in physiotherapy. So I kind of had this idea of, I like neuroscience, I like neurology, um, maybe something like brain-computer interfaces actually would be interesting um, and maybe, you know, really um, applicable to my, my backgrounds at that stage. Um, so I started reaching out to universities in South Africa and at this point I'd acknowledge my really good fortune in meeting my master supervisor, Darby Freden Yefer, who's one of the most open-minded people I've ever met. And um, he gave me the really important opportunity to try and explore what I could do. Um, as I said, I, I wasn't really sure yet. Um, I knew I wanted to change, but I, I wasn't sure yet. But he introduced me to the world of deep learning or, or AI. Um, uh, but I'll probably talk about deep learning a bit. Um, he referred to it as deep learning in this context. Um, and I haven't really looked back since. So my project during my master's was investigating decision-making processes in the brain. Um, I used EEG recordings in an experiment I set up with um, a deep learning model. And basically the idea was to see, could we find features of a decision um, before it was made? So 
this project was really important to me because it gave me the space to explore what I could learn. Um, this is where I started to learn how to code. I started taking math courses and um, you know developing all these skills which I never had in my undergrad. Importantly, at this point, um, I would like to mention the deep learning in Zaba because this was really a great catalyst for my developments and how I started to learn. I was accepted to attend the Indaba in um, 2018, which was held at Stellenbosch University. And it was really just the most exceptional experience. I was exposed to this, this field. I met people who were really interested about this topic that I was only just starting to learn about. And um, I met the most amazing team of people, um, friends that I'm, I still have today and I rely on constantly for, um, ask, you know, we talk about the field, I ask them for advice and um, and learn from them. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. It also gave me um, practical content to work through. So I think um, one of the things I'll mention at this point is that there's no manual from going from physiotherapy to um, more computational based work like AI and neuroscience, well, at least computational neuroscience. But um, the content that the Indaba presented and their practicals and the theory I was exposed to in the lectures, it gave me a concrete starting point for where I could start learning. Um, and this really helped me carry me through to the end of my master's where I ended up doing a lot of the computational work myself. I definitely relied on a lot of people for help, but I didn't outsource it. I was still very much involved in the process. And while a reliance on my, my friends and their generous time, um, which I'm really grateful for, I was able to learn in the process. Um, so this brings me to the end of my uh, master's, which was a period of great uncertainty because I kind of made this transition from physiotherapy. Um, I'd not really engaged in postgraduate courses in the field, so I was a bit behind my peers that I'd graduated with. And I wasn't really sure if I had enough skills to be competitive in the field of machine learning and neuroscience yet. Um, the pandemic also started at this time, um, which was quite devastating and introduced uncertainty to a lot of people. The one thing it did give me is a bit of time to explore options. And um, I had a few opportunities here. Um, I was really fortunate to spend some time as an intern at Aerobotics, um, which is a company that focuses on computer vision and um, giving insight to, to farmers on their, their crop yields. And I um, really, my, my learning accelerated here. My, my coding improved a lot. I was then able to do a internship with the University of Amsterdam, um, my supervisor, Prof. Matthias, and this gave me time to develop my neuroscience theory a bit more. And then, uh, really importantly, uh, somebody um, that really, really helped me progress in this time was uh, Chris Curran that I met through the Indaba, actually. And um, he offered me the opportunity to interview for a startup that he was working with. And um, I, I got the position and I, I was able to work uh, towards a early stage startup, which was really exciting because um, in a startup, there's not necessarily processes in place. So I was, um, I was working very closely with my colleagues and we, we were creating these systems. And the startup basically looked at using um, computer vision for generating business insights. And it, I really liked it because it was specifically focused on African business owners. And it took into account all the challenges they face, such as unlimited, sorry, as limited internet access and unreliable electricity. So it was qu quite a great challenge. So during this time, so this is um, from the start of the pandemic towards um, the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, I also started applying to PhD programs. And um, again, I relied on the generous support of my friends from the Nzaba. They helped me and with my applications, gave me a lot of feedback. And um, 
helped me develop my ideas that are presented in these um, in my applications. Uh, one of the greatest twists of fate was that I'd met um, my now colleague at the Neuromatch Academy Summer School, which is a computational neuroscience school, and he introduced me to my current supervisor, James Fitzgerald. Um, this was really the most wonderful opportunity, I think, coming to Oxford. Um, and this lab specifically, which is looking at brain-computer interface technology, but where it's um, one of the most multidisciplinary teams I've ever been a part of, um, probably uh, since my days as a physiotherapist. And I really, I really appreciate that. We've um, got a team of neurosurgeons, um, doctors, physiologists, engineers, all working together towards this common goal of interfacing with the nervous system. It was also here that I found OxAI, which introduced me to um, a new passion, AI fairness, and um, working towards these um, biases, uh, working on projects addressing these biases. And um, I'm I'm really grateful for that. Uh, just to end off with my story, I just like to acknowledge the one constant that has um, been there because this has not been um, a journey of certainty. Like I said, there's no manual. There's been a lot of trial and error taking things, but one constant has been my family. And I think I'm really fortunate to be able to say that they've supported me throughout this and um, been very patient with my dramatic career change. And um, they continue to support. So I'm really grateful for the communities and the, the friendships that have been, um, and my family that I've been able to rely on throughout this time. I think I, I resonate a lot with uh, when you say supportive families. And, and even the point that you've said, um, the, the path, there's a lot of uncertainty. I think I, I resonate with that so much because I'm, I'm also in that space right now, just after your master's and you're just wondering, where do I go? And it's not even a case of like passion and what, anything. You, you could have it, but you still don't know which direction to go. And yeah, shout out to your uh, friends and uh, your what did you see your the, the people who introduced you the deep planning Daba and all that it's really it's really nice but okay just just to take you a bit back you you had said um your your can I call them supervisors or something had given you the opportunity to explore and and then you know to just search around and see what would interest you. And I, I think maybe I would like to ask if anyone would be interested in the audience to hear kind of that. Because when you're in this exploration stage, I feel like you can still be pulled in very many different directions. But then, of course, I think sometimes with the help of mentors, you can then be able to forge a path. Were there any specific um, maybe tips that you could give anyone who is still in the exploration stage? Mm -hmm. And does the process get any easier or? <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, I, yeah, I, it's been nice to reflect on my journey, but it's also, I still feel very much the same things. I think um, I was quite lucky in that I, my interests, as soon as I found um, my master's project, I, I kind of was cemented and I was um, very much, um, this is what I want to do. So I didn't have to spend too, at least I'm coming from my, um, from my undergrad where it was very much, I don't know what to do. Um, I don't know what, what is possible. Uh, I 
I was I found topics that really excited me and that kind of carried me through throughout. So I, I find something that interests me and then I latch onto it. Um, and then it's very much about, I think the exploration phase for me has very much been, how do I learn to be able to do what I want to do? I've identified this topic. I find it really interesting. I really would like to contribute to it. What do I need to know? And I think this is um, one of the hardest parts. So I think um, the idea that's carried me through is, again, um, definitely go for it. Um, try, see what's possible and talk to people. Um, I often ask people, uh, what do you think um, I need to know? What do you think are the most important things to know if I want to do this? And then you get the idea and you, and you leverage that experience. Um, and, and there's so many resources online at the moment. Um, it's one of the most amazing times to start learning. We've got um, you know, bodies like Coursera, which offer courses and um, they very generously offer financial aid if you can't afford the fees. And these are great ways to learn because you, they, they, they offer TAs, they have forums, so you can talk to other students, you can get your questions answered, um, and they provide quite a bit of structure. But we also live in the age of YouTube, which has, you could pretty much think of anything, um, and it, it could have things do on it there. And, and that's also a nice way to learn. It's a bit more self-paced, and um, you can get exposure to topics. And of course, Google is a gateway to all of these platforms. Um, so once you kind of have an idea of what you might need to learn, you can start finding resources. There's also um, many platforms that we can look to. So, for example, like Zindi, which is um, has data set challenges and machine learning challenges. So you can really, you know, you can test your skills and how you upskill within a project, which is really helpful um, if, if you're struggling to come up with your own ideas. And then, of course, we have events such as the Deep Learning in Zabra. There's the um, Ibra Siemens um, Computational Neuroscience in Viso. There's the Neuromatch Academy. And these are some school-style events which you can apply to they offer um travel support neuromatch academy is purely online so um very accessible and they they take they 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 have thousands of students from across the entire world at the same time so they've really taken a lot of time to think about how they can include everyone and these are great ways to learn and meet people in the community and you know be exposed to topics and um and then you can go you, you take what they present and then you can go and then kind of figure out what you'd like to focus on and go down those rabbit holes um there's also, um, by the things being online, there's also many ways to interact with mentors and find mentors. If, you, if you're in between jobs, for example, or you don't have an institution that you're attached to, there's also um, the OLS, for example, which I believe has been spoken about on this podcast before, they had the Open Seas Mentorship Program, where you can you can apply with a project in mind with mentorship. And Core Africa is another example of a mentorship program where you can come with an idea and they'll match you to a mentor. And then even at the Deep Learning in Zaba, we have a mentorship program, which you can um, apply and get some feedback on a project that you're working on. So I think it's really just about taking advantage of these opportunities and speaking to people. Yeah. And actually what you've said is something that has underlied very, okay, at least most of the episodes that I've done up till now. Talk to people and tap into the communities around you. That's where you find opportunities and that's where you get to grow and, you know, meet new people and learn new things. Um, actually, you've mentioned the deep planning in Daba and I might be going this year uh, to Ghana, which is very exciting. I've not been to the West Africa. Fantastic. Yet. <laughs> yeah, I think I was encouraged by um, someone here in Kenya, a, a colleague who works with Africa's talking. I'm like, ah, 
you have used some sort of like artificial intelligence things in your master's project. So how about you just go and see the community that's really involved in this and I just applied and luckily I was selected. But then I will leave you to tell us the, the story about, not even the story, like what is deep learning in Africa and why is it important for people in AI, at least in Africa? Well, I think, Karen, what's happening in Africa is important for the rest of the world as well. So um, I find it it's really as a global thing as well. But uh, the deep learning in Java is, um, yeah, honestly, one of my, my favorite things. It's um, basically, um, if I were to describe it to you, um, the, the Indaba is a grassroots movement with the mission to strengthen uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence in Africa. It is a culmination of the collective efforts of people across the continent, all working towards a goal larger than themselves, which is to strengthen and empower the African AI community. This is to make sure that Africans are contributors, shapers and owners of the upcoming advances in machine learning. The deep learning in Daba is driven by three pillars, community, leadership, and recognition. The community pillar is driven through the gathering, which you've mentioned we'll be gathering in, in Accra, in Ghana this year, um, at and in Daba. And this is a Zulu word, which is a language from South Africa, meaning a gathering to share knowledge. There are also the Indaba X events, which cater to the leadership pillar, as these events, which are held in different countries across the continent, aim to empower leaders in the community. And very excitingly, this year there were 37 countries represented. The Pillar of Recognition is achieved through the Awards Initiative, which strives to recognize excellence in doctoral and master students, as well as members of the community going above and beyond to support the furthering of the mission. Um, I'm also particularly proud of the Indaba Literature Program, which I mentioned previously. And um, this is open to all members of the African AI community and matches members to a global network of mentors to help develop power skills. So these are the kind of skills that are maybe a little bit harder to learn about in the textbook, but um, are really important when we uh, consider how we drive um, science and our development forwards. So this includes um, help with you know, maybe translating an idea into experiments or getting feedback on a paper you're writing. Um, there's also help with um, feedback on postgraduate applications or interview preparation. And um, we're, we're even um, able to help you if you just want to talk to someone about planning your career. Like you said, that at that exploration phase where there's a lot of uncertainty, um, the, the Indaba Mentorship Program can help with that. Um, if you're in the field and you're not sure where to go next, you can apply and, and we'll match to a mentor and have a conversation about that as well. So it's something, can anyone attend if they're, because me, I'm not machine learning or AI, I'm a user, I'm not a maker. Do they call them makers or developers or artificial intelligence tools? Is this open to anyone within the science field? Was maybe curious about possibilities in artificial intelligence. Yes, yeah, so um, the Andaba really strives towards creating a diverse community and um, it's not necessarily just the people writing the code that that there should be part of the conversation. Um, as you said, users of the technology have a lot of insights and, um, and can own that narrative and bring their perspectives. So um, the Andaba is definitely open to people that maybe uh, don't necessarily identify as a pure machine learning practitioner, but you know, the different fields um, uh, that, you know, where machine learning is applied in their daily life um, or in their projects that they use. And definitely um, 
uh, definitely very welcome, welcome in the, the community. Boomers. And you say that there are three pillars, community, leadership, and and recognition. recognition. Yeah. So, uh, and during the leadership allows, is it like formation or is it like the TEDx where people create independently organized in the environment in different countries to bring practitioners together? Yes, um, I haven't heard that comparison before, but I think it's the, it's a similar idea um, in that. So we have the annual gathering, which is the entire community that comes together. Um, but the X events are then organized somewhat independently with support from the main Indaba, um, and again with the same underlying mission of strengthening the African AI community. But these are then um, these are then driven by people in their country. Um, bringing together larger members of the community because unfortunately as wonderful as the main Adaba is we can't bring everyone together so we um this is whole idea of force multiplication and how do you empower people to reach more corners of the continent and the Adaba X is this way because um it, you then have an event that then draws people from that country um and increases the 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 um the spread and how far wide the the um the Nzaba can can you know can reach and and bring people together to to discuss and you know um, uh, develop the all the goal of working towards the mission of improving uh, and strengthening machine learning in Africa. Well, thanks. And it will be my first Nzaba. Uh, if you think back to your first Nzaba, what was something that you looked forward to, and you had it? Uh, let me, for lack of a better word, use the word fulfilled during the number that I can also look forward to or something that's really exciting uh, that you found exciting yourself? Oh, absolutely. The people um, is what I always think about when someone says the Indaba. It's the first thing I think about. Um, it's the most exceptional community. Um, and yeah, I think that's really something to look forward to. Um, it's the, the thing if I think back to the Indabas I've attended, um, the Indaba Exes I've attended as well in South Africa, it's always the people and the community. Um, it's this amazing collection of the most passionate people um, working towards the goal. Um, and uh, I've made so many wonderful friends and I've had so many opportunities to learn from them. And it's, it's a really wonderful thing and I'm extremely grateful to be a part of it. Okay, I'll be looking forward to seeing people in the in that way and just connecting and learning from the people I see them as so I feel like I so distant from from what I do. But like it will be really nice to connect with them and you know just see where it goes from there. Uh but when you were talking about your uh digital work, yeah, you had talked that you, you had said that you're creating brain computational interfaces or something like that if I don't use it. <laughs> yeah, that's working towards the longer term goal. Yeah. 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 But then um as I was researching for this episode, because people yeah, if we just came and said we're gonna just talk about your story. Could be long, could be short, but like we also like to put things in there that can uh enrich the audience. And I, one article that I came uh, across that you had done, I think, in previous years, could be like the last two years, if I remember they did correctly, but it was bias in AI models. And uh, 
third paper you co-authored discusses the use of adversarial learning for bias reduction. I think this is also something you said during the just now during your introduction where you can feed an image into something and generate a caption or like text. You're trying to reduce the bias for maybe misrepresentation for lack of a better word. Could you just tell us more about that? Because there's a buzz about chat GPT, which is something we'll get into. <laughs> but like <laughs> for me personally, I'm curious. I don't know if anyone else who's listening would be curious about that as well. Yeah, so um, I think um, bias in this large-scale model is a really important topic. Um, it's a really challenging topic and, um, and one that I hope um, gains more traction. Um, so I'll, I'll speak a bit about where the biases um, may come from and then um, the work I've been doing um, as part of ArcCI. And what they are as well. Just for someone who would not know yeah. what bias would be, yeah. Great. So, um, basically, uh, it's oh, I say basically, but it's actually um, a really hard thing to define clearly because it is so context dependent. But when I think of bias, I think about how um, I think of it in terms of fairness and how how a model, an AI model that sets out in the world, does it impact everyone in the same way. Um, does it does it take into account different factors and and um, mean that everyone is has the same potential for the same outcome with interacting with this model? So this is, for example, about if you know if we do a simple search of um, this is a doctor, or I'd like a picture of a doctor. It's really important what comes back in that search query and who the people that are represented in terms of race, in terms of age, in terms of gender. It's really important that. There isn't some kind of bias or um, unfair representation or misrepresentation, as you said, because there's not one, if we look out into the world, there's not one clear description of what a doctor should look like. But unfortunately, sometimes with these models, with the way they're set up and what they've been exposed to, it might reflect back this very limited idea of what a doctor could look like. So um, with that in mind, we need to start thinking about what could lead to these biases or these misrepresentations. And this tends to be, um, in my understanding, twofold. It can either come from the model itself, and this is how well it performs the task, but this is often um, also linked to the data. And these um, models that we're talking about, these big models, and, and, and they're getting bigger and bigger, which means they rely on more and more data. Data is how they learn, and it's how they learn to perform a task that we ask it to do. So for example, like you, like, like I said earlier, you can ask, you can, it can be trained to retrieve a, an image based on a, a text query, or it can be trained to generate an image based on this text query, or, or it can be trained to generate um, text based on an image that you give it. But um, so for the purposes of this, I'll stick to the data angle. Um, and again, just reiterate that these, um, these um, models rely on massive data sets. And this is where we can start to think about where bias might come from. So these data sets need to be labeled by a human and, you know, humans have their own stereotypes and their own perceptions that they can maybe inlay into the data. And this kind of creates this reinforcing cycle. I think something that's gaining um, more um, exposure at the moment, which is really good, is also some questionable practices of these massive data sets. They rely on people that are currently being exploited 
um, and you know they're, they're working in underpaid roles and unregulated roles to try and generate this data. So that's something else that um, might that that definitely needs to be addressed more and more is how do we generate this data? Um, when humans aren't involved in the loop, we tend to then rely on scraping the internet, and that introduces its own issues because they're unaudited. They're not, they're not necessarily ch um, checked by a human just because of their sheer scale. We're talking about billions of images. Um, but importantly, what happens is that you create this frozen snapshot in time. And all these baked-in historical injustices and stereotypes, um, wherever they may come from, are then frozen and fed to the model. And this doesn't really allow for the easing changing of the way the world is represented within these models. They're really expensive to change, uh, to train. Um, we're talking on the order of a million dollars for some of them. And if you think about how our perceptions and thinking has changed, well, the way we think about gender is constantly changing. Um, and, you know, if you start hard coding these really sensitive attributes like race and gender, um, it might mean that some voices aren't represented as much and it becomes harder to listen to them. Um, it becomes harder to see different people in different roles or the way we view things, it becomes harder to change because everything becomes codified in these models. And, um, and this is really important as we think about future because these models are also feeding back into the internet. So essentially what we're doing is we're creating some kind of mirror of society. And this can be good in some contexts, but also when we look to the past, we need to think really critically about how people have been represented and different cultures and different parts of the world have been represented. And we need to acknowledge that these representations are not always done fairly. So this is where the work that I've been doing as part of ArcsAI comes in, where we, um, as a team, look to develop methods to measure and mitigate these societal biases in these existing AI models. So the paper you mentioned, um, I'll start with that one and then mention um, some other work that we've done. The paper from um, 2022, so last year, we referred to as a prompt array keeps the bias away. And this is where we used adversarial learning. Um, that's I, I won't get into the details, but that's basically just a way of gauging how well a model does. And this helps us steer the model's training aspects. Um, and in this case, we steer the model in such a way that concepts such as the intelligence of a person don't change with respect to the person's gender. And we can then swap out gender for another protected attributes of interest, such as race or age. So we, 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 we change the way the model works slightly, um, but we don't change its ability to perform a task. So in this case, we're achieving a, a specific image um, where if you, if, you, if you type into a search engine of um, a photo of an intelligent person, that that should come up with a, a diverse range of people because you, you can't actually map that to gender, age, or race. Um, but you, you still need a model that performs well because if you start sacrificing performance for, for bias, um, for, for less bias, people will be less inclined to use it because at the end of the day, the models need to do something fairly well. Um, more recently, um, just coming back to this idea of data, we've worked on methods to create more balanced data sets to um, allow for a more controlled investigation into the underlying causes of bias. So in the paper, um, which we called Balancing the Picture, debiasing visual language data sets with synthetic contrast sets, we um, make use of some of the advances in generative AI to synthetically edit a person's demographic um, attributes, so specifically gender, using models which you may have heard of like stable diffusion. These are the models where you, you input a text prompt and then it, it creates some kind of image. So we edit existing images using these text prompts. And in doing this, we can create a more balanced data set with men and women equally represented. 
um, but with reducing some of the um, other factors that might contribute to model bias. So the background is exactly the same, but we've got now a, a contrast set, basically, um, two images that look similar with um, um, men and um, women with the, the genders um, uh, equally represented throughout this data set. And this can help us um, counteract some of the data set bias that I've mentioned earlier. Um, then finally, the work that I'd like to mention is um, the work we've done with Visagenda, and this is the benchmark for um, vision language models. Benchmarks are important because they give us a way of testing how well the model is doing. And in this case, it's specifically to allow researchers who are developing these models to test their models for gender bias and occupational roles. And this benchmark gives them a metric at which they which they can um, test their model to see if it improves. So the idea would be that you you, you develop the model, test it, see how well it scores, and then you can go back, help try reduce the bias, and then come back again and test it and see how well it works. So um, the thing I'd like to highlight about the methods that we put forward with this work is is that they um, tend to be um, lower in computational power. So you don't need a million dollars to try and um, do these things. They allow for more exploration by anyone with a computer. So not just big labs with massive computational budgets. And this means that more people can work towards these ideas. And this is really important because again, I mentioned earlier, the problem we face is codifying things that shouldn't be codified. And if more people with more ideas are, are tweaking these models and looking in to see how they work, we can, um, you know, we can get more perspectives and more ways of these models being tested in real world scenarios. And I think this is really important um, to get, you know, more voices in the room um, on how these models are affecting people. Very interesting. You went to me who, I think you've explained it so well, like how how you're uh, dealing with that bias. But like, what would be the, okay, I'm, I'm trying to think about this. From me who's outside, besides perception, for example, as you see, if you input um, the text, I want to uh, maybe see doctors and then they bring people of a certain gender, certain age, certain race. Um, dealing with these biases, um, is it is it only is it only for fair representation or are there other motivations that uh, motivate this work? Yeah, um, so I'm not I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Um, yeah, the question. Okay, probably I'm also the one who's not asking it correctly. So <laughs> but we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you. Uh, the project was dealing with biases for vision language models, if I understand correctly from what you said. Yeah. And so I was trying to kind of see. Okay, now that we've dealt with the bias. Is it only for fair representation or, or fair perspectives or different things? Or is there any other bigger motivation? Do you mean personally or with the work or what we're trying to um, address? Yeah, whichever. Okay. I think I think um I think this work speaks to a much larger goal of creating more equitable and reliable AI systems, I think. Um, there, these AI systems are becoming more and more pervasive in our lives. Um, the access to them is becoming easier, and this has many advantages. I think this is this um, this is quite exciting. That um, maybe I won't get into that part right now, but 
I think there's this idea that we're interfacing with them a lot more and the, the barrier to entry for interfacing with them is a lot lower. And this means that they have a much, um, there's much more potential for them to impact people positively, but also negatively. And also as it spreads out, it becomes harder to um, maybe understand how they might in, um, impact people. Like I said right at the beginning, it's actually really challenging to understand how these um, biases might manifest. That's not an easy thing. Um, but we, we the how I see it, and I'll maybe mention um, some work that um, inspires me in this way, is basically thinking about how do we get these systems that when we're working with them and using them, that they're the same for everyone, or at least that there's a more fair outcome so that they behave reliably so that there's less chance of something going wrong and someone's life being impacted or with the same group of people being impacted in the same way. So I think um, at this point, I'd like to um, maybe share a bit um, about one of my, my greatest sources of inspiration and understanding of um, how I like to think about this this topic. And it's um, work by Laura Widinger um, from Google's DeepMind. She's got, um, she's um, part of a, a larger author team that put forward this paper um, called Ethical and Social Risks of Harm from Language Models. So, um, the, the, the paper focuses specifically on language models, but I think the principles they put forward um, are really, really helpful and generalizable to a lot of domains when it comes to reliable AI systems. Um, so the, the, one of the, the points they put forward is representational and allocational harms. And um, I think uh, the the goal it, um, or motivation behind the work that I've described is also trying to understand these and also mitigate them. So um, I'll just explain um, these two terms. So with representational harms, this is um, this is basically when we think about how we think about something or someone or a group of people or perhaps uh, a cultural group or uh, where someone comes from. Um, these um, representational harms happen when our perceptions change negatively. So I've mentioned the um, example of um, you know, inputting a search for a doctor in a search engine. Um, but if we now think about a young child that's um, looking at different careers, if they input this and then they suddenly see that, um, oh wait, maybe they don't see themselves represented in a doctor, they might discount themselves from that opportunity. And maybe they they make decisions in their life that moves them away from a career that they could have actually been really good at or that maybe would have been very fulfilling. And I think that's really important to think about because if the the internet and how we interact with it and these AI models change our perceptions of how we view other people or how we view ourselves, that leads to um, you know maybe mental health issues, but also just um, uh, which which leads me to the next point of allocational harms, but how we discount ourselves or maybe other people for opportunities. And how we view people is exceptionally important. How we view ourselves is also really important. So that's the one framework that they put forward. And I think working towards um, reliable and responsible AI, we need to think about that. The other one is um, slightly more tangible in the sense of allocational harms. And these arise when the outputs of an AI model impact access to resources. So if we think about um, maybe an example where an AI system is deployed in a hospital and it has the, the goal of taking in patient data and then deciding um, what should happen and you know, maybe who should get the, the last ventilator, what information is it taking into account. Mm -hmm. While humans are also prone to mistakes, if we um, the, the same is true for models. 
And it's really important to understand that when it makes a decision about who gets that last ventilator or who gets access to the medicine in a low resource environment, it's really important to understand why it's making that. And then it's also important to make sure that it's not the same people that get excluded over and over again, perhaps because it has some bias or it's not taking into account some kind of information that it really should be when making that decision. And that can, and that, so that's, that's a, um, quite a, a scary um, example that I think about. And it's, it's how, it, and also coming from my background in physiotherapy is one that, that, that you know, resonates with me quite a lot is how do we think about it? And I think, um, not everyone's had the chance to work on the front line like I have, but this, this example to me is um, the one I think about the most, um, when I think about how do we develop these systems and, um, what do we put in place? What safeguards do we have in place to make sure that this doesn't happen? So um, just to round off this idea, I think um, investigating bias, it enforces us to ask questions such as, you know, when this model is used in this situation, is it going to impact different people in the same way or differently? And differently is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it's, it's important to understand why it's doing that and if it's going to lead to some kind of repeated negative harm. And, you know, we need to understand how much context is it able to bring into a situation and avoid outcomes that are too um, hard-coded. And I think it's really important to think about when we think of AI and where AI might be going, I think it's really important to face these questions head on and deeply investigate how these models impact our perceptions, so the representational harms that might arise, and if these outputs um, treat people fairly. And um, addressing bias also helps us understand the limitations of these systems because they, they, they tend to on the surface look like they can do things really well and I think that's really exciting and should be celebrated but we also need to understand when more human intervention is necessary and perhaps um, help us understand when accountability needs to kick in and how we can avoid it going wrong for the same people over and over. Well I, I think that's a very clear clarification because I think at first I wasn't getting it but now I see it's about creating equitable AI systems or models <laughs> or something like that, which is ah, very interesting work. I really never even thought maybe I need to visit hospitals more. But like that example, they even know like you, AI systems might be deployed for something like that. I just thought it's really very research-based, but it's good to hear like the impact on the ground, like the actual implementation of these models in our day-to-day -day lives. Wow. Yeah. I enjoy yeah, listening to that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we, we tend to test things in very isolated um, environments and, you know, create publication-ready results. But if we aren't thinking about how these are deployed in the real world and the downstream impacts, I think that's where things start to become a bit scary. Um, and there's a lot of great work that does this. Um, I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to explain how I think about it and um, like the motivation behind the work. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. Just this morning, I learned because, you know, of the questions I had sent, I didn't even know that ChatGPT is generative AI and then there's vision language, there's this, there's that, which is why I enjoy this platform so much. I wouldn't have known that. <laughs> but like, what are your perspectives about generative AI and how do you, okay, let's start with the perspective first and then we can see sort of like what you think of how it will progress in the future and maybe how it will impact researchers, students, normal people. Yeah. 
Great. Um, I might, I might, um, I might answer the second part of your question and what I, I uh, what I would hope or maybe what I would like to see. But, uh, but uh, let me start with the first part of your, your um, question about what I, my perspective on generative AI. I think it presents um, a really exciting opportunity. I think um, it's really, we live in a really exciting time. Um, and I'm particularly interested in to see how um, generative AI can be used alongside our, our daily tasks. I think um, generative AI has the potential to augment our daily activities and absorb some of the more time-consuming tasks. So, for example, one of my favorite things to do is to ask Google's Bard, which is um, uh, also a large language model, uh, to help me with um, generating doc strings for my code. So this is something that takes a lot of time and energy, um, but I ask it to, I, I, I give it a um, prompt, I, I say I need a, a template doc string, and then it gives me a, a template, and then I can then um, edit that as I need to, because it doesn't get it right 100%, but it gives me a very good template that I can just tweak. And then I can save some energy for, you know, the more fun coding challenges that I'd like to work through. Um, the one thing I'm also really excited about is the learning potential. So again, using BARD, I like to um, ask to help me to optimize small bits of code um, that I've written and that how I might um, make it a bit faster or if there's maybe a different way to do it. And I, I've, um, I've learned quite a bit in doing this. Um, other things that I find really interesting is the ability to improve our data sets. So like I mentioned earlier, we um, data sets um, can be a great source of bias. So generative AI allows us to steer this process a bit better. For example, like we did in the work um, that I mentioned with balancing the picture. Um, I've also seen really exciting work where um, image generation can help us um, in, in cases that are actually really hard. For example, like this binary encoding of gender. Um, I've seen work where they've encoded it on a spectrum, and this is an important move away from binary representations of gender, um, which are typical in our current implementations of models, and we can avoid maybe reinforcing this idea in future models. By um, It's important for us to remain cognizant that while binary encoding is how things um, maybe are done, but we also run the risk of erasing non-binary people on the internet. Um, and this is really important when we think of training future models. Um, so you'll notice that with these examples I've chosen, um, they're quite specific where the AI is used alongside a human um, or myself. It's not left to its own devices and, the, and we're not placing blind faith in it. We're, we're engaging with its outputs quite critically. Um, and while we can maybe use it to counteract some of the biases in the dataset augmentation, even with this idea, we need to be careful that a, a, a bias uh, the model can introduce its own bias. So by asking it to change an image slightly, it itself could be biased. Um, so in our paper, Balancing the Picture, we refer to this stacking biases that we need to be mindful of. So um, while it's really exciting, I think, um, and I hope that we engage with it quite critically going forward in that. And um, just make sure that AI is, you know, like I said, it's, that it's not increasing inequalities or what's not treating some people unfairly. Um, and I think, the one thing that I'm, I'm, you know, trying to read as much about as possible at the moment is because I think we're also facing with the way work is going to change, and I think uh, we, while there's great potential for us to improve our workflows with generative AI, we need to think very carefully about the work it might replace. So I refer quite a bit to Andrew Ng's writing on the topic, um, and I think, like I said, well, might be really exciting that we no longer have to answer emails on a Friday. Um, we also need to remain aware that um, we need to think about how can we empower more people to become users of the technology, to you know, to find work and and um, in, and um, 
earn a living. When you think of a country like South Africa, with employment rates close to 50%, with many people living below the poverty line, um, it's a little bit scary for me to think that, you know, people might, more people might lose their jobs. Um, and while I don't think stifling the progress is the answer, I think it's just important to think, how can we empower more people to use and interact with and improve AI to make a living and, and you know, um, find a, a fulfilling purpose and, and in a way to work? Um, and I don't know what the answer to this is, um, but it's a conversation I hope to have um, more and more going forward. I think just be, just before you said uh, you don't know what the answer to it, I was just thinking in my head, uh, what are those ways that we could use to empower people to use it more? Yeah, and also true with the discourse that we are seeing, I think the same conversation has been had here as well. Like as more and more people become comfortable with AI, for example, people like us by informaticians who really do a lot of data analysis, if someone is able to, you know, analyze their own thing, then how do you come in? But then, you know, we have to keep evolving with the times because things are not going to be stagnant. So also empowering ourselves to see how we fit into the bigger equation. I really enjoy it. Honestly, I have probably have said this after every answer that you've given, but I've really enjoyed that part as well, just seeing the actual implications that we might face and how we might just mitigate through it so that, you know, instead of demonizing, AI is coming to, you know, wipe the human generation, casual workers, or I don't know, maybe people like secretaries would, are, are going to be affected. It's, it's good to hear the perspective of this is how we can embrace and instead of shunning it, we can, we can just evolve with it. That's really nice. Yeah, yeah, I definitely um, think that there's not not to to common risk, but I think if we just if we just keep talking about it and and facing the current realities and questioning how we're doing things and how they could be done better in the future, and not um, and actually just admitting that the this, the the technology today is impacting people in a negative way, and how can we um, how can we you know, not forget that and you know strive for progress but also at the same time use it as an opportunity to improve it as we go forward and, and develop these responsible systems you know very thought-provoking thoughts right there what did i just say <laughs> anyway so just to wrap up the conversation what are some of the things that you enjoy doing outside making more equitable ai systems uh, outside your D-field, outside communities like Indaba that have helped you grow and sort of tap into that community. What are some of the things that you enjoy doing? Um, I really love reading. Um, I love arts and um, walking. Um, I really, really enjoy meeting friends to to sit around and, and discuss or just chat about anything really in fun locations. I really try hard to keep balance. I must admit, it's one of the hardest things for me to do is um, to stop working. The temptation to work is really high. Um, but the one thing I really like about these activities is that they allow me to relax and think a little bit differently, which is um, something I really appreciate. Nice. I also do love reading books. I think one one of the one of my most favorite books, which is African authored and actually their setting is very African. Is called Allies Not Obliged. It's, very, it's such a good book. <laughs> Just putting it out there for anyone who might be interested to to read it. It's based on in Mali. We barely ever hear. There are some countries that barely ever hear about them, but 
that's a really good way to also learn about things going on there. And I was going to ask what would be the one piece of advice you'd give young scientists that are, you know, upcoming in the field of AI. So some of them you've already talked uh, about, for example, the tapping into communities, reaching, reaching out and speaking to people. Is there any other that you'd like to add? Um, I'll, I'll keep this, this really short and to the point, but definitely go for it. Um, don't be afraid to speak about your goals and ask for help. Um, it's, it's really, you know, put your thoughts out there and, 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 um, yeah, definitely go for it. Well, definitely go for it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. This is going to be episode eight, uh, of our podcast. I really hope people will, I feel like you'd say you've given us a lot of gems about AI and the practicality of it all. I don't think there's any ways anyone would not enjoy listening to this as much as I have. <laughs> so until yeah. next time, people, bye.